Irish Nation, welcome back. Notre Dame advances to 3-0 on the season with a solid win over in-state rival Perdent, and once again they secured the Shillelagh Trophy. Mike, how you doing in L.A.? It's great. Finally got a normal weekend of football without too much travel. Got to stay in my normal routine. I did drive up to wine country, so that was great. Can't turn down that sheesh, you know, when it's so closely available to you. Um, but it sounds like you had quite a quite a travel weekend. Yeah, I actually missed a good portion of the Purdue game live. I was in Chicago celebrating a wedding of some Notre Dame friends. Big congrats, Win and Manny. Uh, also took the opportunity to do a little scouting for our final segment this week, a four horsemen of Notre Dame bars in Chicago, and got to relive my old stomping ground where I lived for a couple years out of school. So we'll close out the show giving our listeners all the recommendations for how to watch Notre Dame take on Wisconsin next week, even if you don't have tickets to the game in the 3-1-2. Speaking of tickets to the game, Guyrish Talk will be in person next week. Brett and I both have tickets, so we won't be live tweeting stats on this one, but we will have a bird's eye view of, the, of all the action. Before we get to Chicago Bars and the rest of the show, wanted to remind our listeners, we love hearing from you. We've gotten some really good feedback so far as we've launched the podcast, so please keep it coming. Rate us, leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts, reach out to us on Twitter, send us your questions about Notre Dame football. We, we love engaging with our fans. With that, we've got a great show for you. We'll recap the Purdue game, look ahead to Wisconsin's matchup, and then our deep dive segment of the week will be on the elusive transfer quarterback. Interesting. And we're also excited to bring back listener questions this week. Let's dive in. You go out and you play four quarters of football. So the game is tied. It means nothing. You gotta play for four quarters. You gotta compete for four quarters every single play. Our first listener question. What has you most worried? Linebackers or the offensive line? I think it's the offensive line. That's not gonna surprise a lot of people. Um, Blake Fisher, he's going to be out a couple months. Sounds like Cromody's injury, thankfully, isn't serious. As we talked about last week, the pro football focus grades are maybe better than what meets the eye. Again, this week against Purdue, a lot of sacks allowed, and the running game just isn't generating consistent push. Saw a tweet from Pete Sampson, actually, that Notre Dame is 20, 125th in the country in sacks allowed, but 5th in sacks by the defense. So pretty clear the O-line right now is the biggest cause for pause on this team. Still hopeful that offensive line uh, will gel, you know, we'll get there, but we haven't seen it yet, and Wisconsin's really going to put that to the test. And for our listeners that also listen to the Solid Verbal, the cause for pause that Mike mentioned, the official pet charity of the Garish Talk podcast. Great. Yeah. Great segue for our next question. We're three games into the season. Now, the five-game gauntlet is starting, as we mentioned in our opening show, so... Our listener question, how do you reassess the remaining schedule for Notre Dame after the first quarter of the season is, is now over? Great, great question. Something we look at every week. Um, you know, we'll, we'll try to not rehash every single opponent still on the schedule, but for opponents who are trending down, UNC has looked bad at times. They got blown out by Virginia Tech. Um, they've had trouble keeping Sam Howell upright, lost a bad game. Um, against Vitek before winning comfortably against a good UVA team. So not really quite sure what team is going to show up each week. USC has looked awful against Stanford. Then they bounced back with a win against Washington State this weekend. Keaton Slovis was hurt in that one. Clay Helton's gotten fired, um, which actually might long-term be a bad news for Notre Dame fans. Um, but in the near term, the Trojans generally in disarray. Um, we've talked about Stanford's recruiting struggles and downward trajectory of the program, but they've won two straight now. They're looking a bit better than they did in their opener versus Kansas State. So overall, those are the teams that seem to be trending down, and therefore I feel better about our matchups with them, um, particularly the ones at home. We'll get to Wisconsin in detail in this game, but that's looking like another top 10 defense with an okay offense and just another kind of top 10, 15 team version of Wisconsin that, that we've come to just expect in the Big Ten. And probably a tough matchup for Notre Dame is, as you think about coming into the heels of a not-so-hot start to the season, physical on both lines. Um, it, it's going to be a challenge for our offensive line in particular. Cincy and Virginia Tech, I think, are two teams that give me now a lot of concern. Cincy was in a tight game against IU and showed some, track, uh, some, some cracks in their armor. But generally, that's still probably the hardest game on our schedule other than the fact that we're playing it at home. And Virginia Tech... Look, they, they just lost a game to Virginia, uh, to West Virginia that they probably shouldn't have, but they beat a very solid UNC team. 
and ESPN had us winning this game 61% of the time in the preseason. ESPN's projection now actually says Virginia Tech will beat Notre Dame 60% of the time. So to me, the, the two biggest games on our schedule is Cincy because it's the toughest team and Virginia Tech because it's a really tough team on the road. Um, other than that, I still feel good about the November slate, but I think it's getting through these next five weeks with Wisconsin, Cincy, and Virginia Tech right now looking like the headliners. Starting to feel like 2012, 2012 a bit. Uh, just great schedule on paper, but crumbling a little bit as you get more into it. We might get to 10 wins, maybe even run the table, but that's more a function of a softer schedule than expected, not necessarily that this Irish team is, is raising their level or play. We mention this every week. Despite the 3-0 start, ESPN's win predictor is about 8.4 for ND right now. Wisconsin, Cincy, Virginia Tech, UNC, UVA, those are all basically 50-50 games. So while the schedule might not have a top-10 opponent, ND isn't playing like a top-10 team, and, and we should be prepared for competitive football games for the remainder of the year. We're having some movement around in terms of which of these games are more challenging, um, but regardless, Notre Dame's not looking dominant, and these teams, certainly if we don't bring it, will be able to beat us. For sure. With that, let's dive into the Purdue game. This process is hard. Paying attention to detail is hard. Being focused is hard. All right, Irish win. Shake off a sluggish start. Cruise to a relatively stress-free second half. Final score, 27-13. Uh, Purdue's big drum not allowed in the stadium. Fans of college football rivalries. Some people love the pettiness. Some people hate it. In this case, I thought it was, I thought it was kind of funny. Um, and, you know, I think... Some people would argue maybe that that impacted their football team on the field. I think that remains to be seen. Uh, now, so, now for some stats that actually matter, let's run down the advanced box score. Yeah, starting every week with the post-game win expectancy, this one was 92% Notre Dame. So Notre Dame clearly the dominant team. If you replay these exact plays 100 times, Notre Dame walks away winning 92 of those games. Um, so clearly the better team. Interestingly, though, that dominance was entirely driven by explosive plays. Purdue had an offensive success rate of 35%. As a reminder, you want that number in the low 40s if you're an offense. That's kind of the benchmark. So Purdue's offense was hanging in there. They were, generally speaking, uh, able to move the ball downfield, but their explosiveness was just 1.1. We'll continue to try to benchmark these stats for our listeners. Success rate in the low 40s, good goal. Purdue at 35%, pretty good. Uh, that explosiveness rating, though, of 1.1, that would have been among the 10 worst offenses in the country if played out over an entire season in terms of explosiveness. So this is a game where the Notre Dame defense really flipped the script from what we saw in the first two games. They avoided the big plays. They didn't make big mistakes. Purdue was able to dink and dunk for most of the game, pick up a few yards here and there, but it just wasn't enough without any big plays. Um, really just had four plays over 15 yards in this game for Purdue. None of them were longer than 32 yards. So you really saw Marcus Freeman shore up the, those big plays that hurt Notre Dame in the first two games. Definitely. I think the Purdue offense was who we thought they were going into it. That was something we pointed out last week. We said, look, their offense can move the ball a bit, but uh, they don't really have those big play threats. And that's, and that's exactly what happened here. And it played into, I think, our defensive strengths and weaknesses. And also our, our defense took another step here, which was nice to see. Uh, but anyways, moving moving on, we, in terms of Havoc, ND generated a Havoc rate of 19%. For context, anything above 15% is generally above average. 19% is right around top 25 in the country over the course of the season. And interestingly, that Havoc was driven by the secondary. 11% Havoc rate with passes deflected, interceptions, tackles for loss by the cornerbacks and safeties. Not surprising given what we saw from Kyle Hamilton. He received several Defensive Player of the Week awards across the entire country. Third interception on the season, should be four. Uh, the ridiculously amazing tackle that uh, blew up the fourth and short play for Purdue. Incredible. Uh, Brian Kelly mentioned that play uh, in the postgame uh, press conference. Hamilton was just all over the field in this one. Cam Hart had a solid game two. Um, then he made the huge play that led to the interception at the end of the game. Yeah, double-clicking on some of this, looking at the pro football focus grades. A ridiculous 86.5 for Kyle Hamilton. That's the highest grade for any Notre Dame player in any game this season. Myron Tung, Vailoa, Amosa, DJ Brown, Jack Kaiser, the other top defensive grades in this one. Thought this was a really big game for DJ Brown. He's someone that has been kind of fighting for a starting spot opposite of Kyle Hamilton at the other safety position, going up for that with Houston Griffith and Isaiah Pryor. 
really the entire secondary, I thought, took a step forward in this game. Um, Cam Hart's grade was a 64, which was a little lower than I was expecting. Um, you know, 64 is kind of below average, but starter level. Um, I thought, though, that was really solid considering the tough matchups he had in this game against Purdue's receivers. Bell, a very good receiver who, who went down with an injury late in the game. Um, felt like Cam Hart, you know, gave up some plays to him, but was generally hanging in there. Um, so across the secondary, I thought, r- really good performance in this one. Yep. Uh, J.D. Bertrand, interesting one as well. Double-digit tackles in this game. He's now averaging 12 tackles per game. And from the surface, it looks like he's really overshadowing Drew White at this point, which is great. But uh, Pro Football Focus grades him at just a 55, which is about where he's been the entire season. So this is a great scenario where classic football stats like tackles don't necessarily paint the whole picture. Bertrand, he's getting a lot of tackles because the offense is attacking him, but he may not be in good positions. Or... It's just a function that the linebackers get a lot of tackles in general. But when we get into these advanced metrics, Bertrand seems to be struggling, definitely feeling the, the absence of a guy like Maris Luefell. Meanwhile, Jack Kaiser has the greatest 76 in this game, easily his best performance on the season. Bo Bauer, he also saw his most action, 36 snaps in this game, and he had a grade of 70, which uh, he's consistently done for three straight games. Yeah, and very interestingly, Drew White only played 36 snaps in this game. Um, that's back-to-back weeks now where he's, been on the field less than 50% of the time. There's some rumors coming out that he's dealing with a nagging injury. Um, So there's a lot of things to unpack on the linebacker questions here. We got this as a question from the listeners if if it should be an area of concern, largely because of the injuries. And that's important, right? So it sounds like Drew White might be dinged up. We've talked a lot about the Luafau injury, um, the Shane Simon injury. Um, But Kaiser and Bauer are grading out really well. Um, they're both at the weak side linebacker position where they share time. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see those guys get more opportunities and more snaps. Maybe fewer snaps for Bertrand, even though he's playing really well, but could see those guys cross-training about the weak side and the mic. Um, Bertrand's stamp count comes down maybe a little bit, give him a breather. I, I think J.D. Bertrand is a really, really good football player. I think he's a young guy to try to hold up for 80 snaps a game. And so some combination of Kaiser and Bauer getting on the field more, Drew White getting healthier. I actually think you're going to then see um, Bertrand maybe step up his quality of play just on fewer plays, and and then he's a tackling machine, and I think that'll put him in a spot to do really well over the course of a season. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Brett. I think, um, at least like from what I've seen from a lot of commentators, beat writers, people on the staff, they seem to be very high on Bertrand. They think he's playing at a high level, but it is a high snap count, and it does seem to be wearing him down. I think that would, that accounts for some of these like lower pro football-focused grades that we're seeing. So, yeah, hopefully we can get a little bit more depth there, take down a snap count, and uh, the overall quality will improve. Yeah, um, and just for this, the tackle stat, which, again, tackles I, isn't a stat I really look at a lot, but J.D. Bertrand's top five in the country in tackles, so he's getting a lot of recognition across the country for the just kind of sheer numbers he's putting up. But I think you're seeing that because he's just playing 80 snaps a game and they might not be the most quality at times, especially in the third, fourth quarter. And you know, I th- th- think it's an area where he's getting some flashy stats, but we're going to need to try to do something different on the defense over the course of a year. Yeah, for sure. I think he's his tackle count is overstating how good he is. And then the pro football focus grade is probably lower than what his impact has been. So somewhere in the middle. Um, Overall, though, great day for Marcus Freeman. Really great bounce back against a pretty solid Purdue offense. Top 25 for SP Plus coming into this game. Um, Big, I think a big takeaway was that the uh, the big plays were taken away, and we still generated a lot of havoc. So the result was a really, really good outing for this unit, allowing just 13 points. On the other side of the ball, Notre Dame's success rate was 28%. Again, you want to be in the low 40s. That was easily the lowest uh, success rate for the season um, for for the Notre Dame offense. Struggled all day to consistently move the ball. They started out with three straight three and outs in this game. And Purdue, look, they've they've got a star defensive end in George Karloftis, and they did a nice job generating pressure, disrupting the Irish offense. Uh, Purdue had a havoc rate of 17% in this game. So that's about on par with Notre Dame's defense that we said did a great job generating havoc. But the big difference in this game where this game was really won and lost was in explosiveness. Notre Dame had an explosive rating of 1.7. Obviously, that's not sustainable over the course of a season, 
but 1.7 would be the most explosive offense in the country if you could repeat that for 12 games. So a really, really dynamic job by Tommy Reese that when they got the right play call, they took advantage with some really big plays in this game. The 62-yard touchdown to Avery Davis. Kyron broke out for the 40-yard touchdown on a beautifully executed slant route on fourth and short. Great throw by Cohen into really good coverage, tight window, nailed the throw, broke it loose for a touchdown. And then the 51-yard touchdown run by Kyron Williams to end this game. What a great run. I mean, that looked like it was going to be a one- or two-yard gain. Wasn't the best push up front by the offensive line. He waited. He was patient. He waited for the first hole, the second hole, the third hole, and then finally he hit the second level hard, shredded some sloppy Purdue arm tacklers, trucked his way for a 50-yard touchdown, ball game over. Really, really great performance by Kyron. Yep. Impressive run. And I think these stats that you're mentioning on success rate, ex- explosiveness, that matched what I was seeing when I was watching the game. It felt like on offense we were slogging along, a lot of plays that weren't working. But then we would, ha- we would uh, have a play that would go for, like you said, 60 yards, 50 yards. And that's really what uh, was the difference in this game. To put that low success rate into context, if you remove Kyron's 50-yard touchdown run in the fourth quarter, Kyron and Chris Tyree combined to manage just 3.1 yards per carry in this game. And Jack Hunt's completion percentage was also only 50%. So by the advanced stats, especially against a relatively average Purdue defense, this is probably our worst offensive performance of the season. Definitely a, a cause for pause going into next week's matchup, I think, against a, uh, a team like Wisconsin with, with such a stout defense. And then turning to the pro football grades on the offensive line, run block graded out at 72. That was actually the best effort of the season. I think that's probably getting a little bit too much of a boost from the Kyron Williams 51-yard touchdown run still. Um, just doesn't seem like we're generating enough running lanes, enough just movement up front um, at the line of scrimmage. And then in pass protection, we actually saw this go the other way. So in the earlier games, we actually said the pro football focus grades were suggesting a lot of these sacks were maybe missed pass protection reads by Jack Cohn or missed blitz pickup assignments by the running backs and tight ends, and that the offensive line was actually grading out really well in uh, pass protection. Not the case in this game. Um, worst grade of the season at 55. That translates to just barely replaceable. Um, replaceable isn't the adjective you want to use for your offensive line. So we've yet to see a game this year where the offensive line has really figured it out in the grades for both run blocking and pass blocking. It's a huge flaw in this team. We talked about it in our listeners uh, segment, so I'll try to avoid repeating ourselves. This unit needs time to gel. We've said that theme a lot. They need time to gel. And right now, you're not seeing that. They've started three different left tackles due to injury. Hopefully, we get Carmody back, and that brings some consistency. I thought, um, you know, Jarrett Patterson continues to grade out well. He was 69 in run block and an amazing 84 in pass blocking. But then Tosh Baker, the new left tackle, he graded out at a 29 in pass blocking. Um, Tosh is a young player, bright future, but he looked like a third string player in this game. Um, Brian Kelly praised his competitiveness. He said he kept drawing tough matchups against Karloftis, the all-Big Ten rusher, and hung in there. But Tosh Baker was consistently losing that battle, and he's going to need help from a double team or something else in in big matchups, or it's going to be a long season, unless if Carmody comes back. But right now that offensive line unit just isn't there yet. Karloftis is about as tough a matchup as you could uh, ask for 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 a young tackle. But not a good performance. Hopefully... Tosh can uh, take this take this experience and use it to uh, improve going forward. Um, anyway, rest of the offense, Kyron Williams, Neighbor Davis, no surprise, both graded at 80, which is a really high score from uh, pro football focus. And interesting to see Jack Cohn got a grade of 75, also very strong. In the advanced box score, Cohn's predicted points added per play was 0.2. For context, he was about 0.4 in the first two games. Ian Book last year in the 2020 season, he was about 0.4. So not the most productive day from Cohn on some of the advanced stats, but I think you're seeing in pro football focus that he didn't have any turnovers, two big touchdown throws, and a lot of those offensive struggles came from the pressure being allowed by the offensive line. Not not a whole lot that Cohn can do about that. Yeah, we talked in last week's show, Cohn was taking some sacks where he's just got to get the ball out. Um, I saw that happen at least once on Saturday where we had an empty set. There's no running back in the backfield. We had five wide receivers. Purdue brought a blitz. Cone took a sack. That ball just has to get out. However, that only happened like 
once in this game, I think, maybe twice. Mm-hmm. And that was happening a lot earlier in the season. So um, I thought Cohn was really solid in this performance. I know the stat line was actually maybe worse than it was in, in the first two games of the season. But I think the narrative begins and ends with, with the offensive line. Up front, they, they just need to hold up better for our running backs and our quarterbacks. Yeah, I, I thought Cohn was a little less accurate than he has been, but not, not dramatically so. And um, uh, last note on the offense here, I really don't want to harp on this, but maybe the horse trap you'll ever see by Braden Lindsay would have been another big touchdown and turned this game into a rout. Uh, give Cohn credit there for, for making that great deep ball throw. Uh, suddenly his stat line is 207 yards and three touchdowns if they hit that. Looks a lot better. So what else did we miss? Going, going through our notes, the first one I want to highlight and last week's show, I predicted that Notre Dame would win by 14 points and the game would be under the over-under of 58 points. So spot on with that prediction. I'm going to go and put one point in the bucket for Brett on the season. Uh, what else did we miss? Uh, I think we covered it already, but worth talking about the, the offensive line play within broader context of the season. Game seemed better, maybe a slightly better run performance, but as you mentioned, Brett, really driven by, by one big play. And then interestingly, quite a big setback in pass protection, but... That was starting from a pretty low bar, given all the sack issues in these first two games. And Karloftis, as we mentioned, phenomenal defensive lineman. Uh, just a tough matchup for, for an inexperienced offensive line. Um, now you get Wisconsin and Cincy the next two weeks. We'll talk about Wisconsin next. But if you said, why are all these upcoming games basically 50-50 odds to win? Well, it's not clear we will, we will win the line of scrimmage. In fact, we'll probably lose the line of scrimmage on offense in the next few games. And that makes winning really hard. It's a great point. I mean, we've gotten to a 3-0 and start right now because we've played some teams that just aren't as good as the competition coming up. And if he said, what's the strength of Wisconsin and Cincinnati? It's their front seven on defense. And right now, that's our biggest weakness is going up against big front sevens. So how do you get better from here? We mentioned hopefully Carmody comes back from injury. But otherwise, this is the group. Like They just got to gel and you got to hope it clicks. And if it doesn't, this might be an eight or nine win team. This might be a seven win team. Um, you know, Wisconsin is going to be a really, really big test for us since he's going to be a really big test. I think in these next two weeks, we're going to learn a lot more about Notre Dame and, and where this team can really take the season. And the position group I'm watching is winning line of scrimmage battles up front when Notre Dame's got the football. And then defense really looks like the unit found its stride. I think a big takeaway from this past game is uh, is just how they stepped up. Makes me it gives me some cause for optimism moving forward that they're going to keep us close in every game. Hopefully, we get back to what we've been used to these last few years, where you can just rely on the defense to to keep that point total down and, and make some big plays. Yeah, hate to put too much stock in any one game, but this was about as good of a performance as I think any Notre Dame fan could have hoped for from from the defense. So, with that, let's turn it over to Wisconsin and dive into next week's game. Everybody understood the process. Everybody understood total preparation. Today was total dominance. Wisconsin week. Badgers will be coming off a bye week at 2-0, something that's going to be very familiar uh, for Notre Dame the next five weeks or so. Um, So first game of the gauntlet, probably the, the toughest five games on the schedule coming up. Interestingly, four or five of those are at home or neutral site. But as we mentioned, all five of those teams will be coming off a bye week. Downside to independent scheduling. All these teams can maneuver their conference scheduling to rest up ahead of playing ND. Um, so that's part of the reason why we always seem to get everyone's best shot. And certainly two weeks of prep for head coach Paul Chris, you know the Badgers are going to be coming to this one with uh, a strong game plan. So what do we know about Wisconsin? Let's start with 2020. We're still early in this season, so not a ton of data points. But we'll, we'll look at both 2020 and then a little bit into how they've done in 2021. And then we'll dive into their big players and what Irish fans should be on the lookout for. Uh, last year, they finished two spots ahead of Notre Dame in the SP+. We've covered this at length. Jack Cohn was their starting quarterback going into the season, went down with an injury. Graham Mertz comes in, takes the job, looks ridiculously good for one game, gets COVID, isn't the same after that. And then they lost three straight to Northwestern, Indiana, and Iowa. They squeak out an overtime win against Minnesota. They pummel Wake Forest in the Dukes Mayo Bowl. Meme status celebration with mail flying everywhere, and they finish four and three in a shortened COVID season. Pretty meh by Wisconsin standards, but SP Plus did really like their efficiency. Had this as a top twenty team. 
despite that 4-3 record, they finished number three in the SP Plus last year, number nine on offense and number two on defense. I mean, that's shocking, right? Very limited sample size. 4-3, uh, you get blown out by Iowa, held the single digits in three straight games on offense. Looking at the FEI uh, ratings from Football Outsider, they have them at 26 overall with the number 98 offense and the number four defense. To me, that feels a bit more accurate. I'm not sure if it's Bill Connolly moving to ESPN, maybe tweaking his formulas for TV ratings and internet clicks, or if he just struggled adjusting to the shortened COVID seasons, which would be a totally uh, reasonable um, thing to happen in a situation like that. But I don't know how Wisconsin at four and three wound up as the number three team in SP+. Com- completely agree. It feels like last year, four and three record, FEI ratings maybe got it more right from a stat system. But either way, a, a really solid team, um, maybe despite the win-loss record. Turning to this year, one and one start. They beat Eastern Michigan 34-7. to That's the last we'll talk about that game. I don't think there's much more to learn from it. In the opener, they lose a really tough game, 16-10 to against Penn State. A classic, ugly Big Ten game. Maybe one of the ugliest first halves of all time. It's just worth reading the drive chart from the first half. Punt, punt, turnover on downs, punt, punt, missed field goal, punt, fumble, punt, 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 end of half. There were more three and outs in the first half in the Wisconsin-Penn State game than there were first downs. Not great football. That drive chart for true Big Ten fans is a thing of beauty. And and even for fans of the SEC from back in the, the SEC defense days. Um, but nowadays, I think we're a little bit more into the, uh, the exciting uh, high-octane offenses. But second half turns into an exciting game, I, I guess. Penn State completes two 40-plus yard uh, throws to Jahan Dotson, enough to squeeze out a couple touchdowns. Wisconsin offense sputters, ends the game on a 17-play drive, and a seven-play uh, and a, and a seven drive that both end in Graham Mertz interceptions. Penn State survives. Brett, what are the takeaways from that game? For starters, Wisconsin fans are pulling their hair out watching Graham Mertz post a 14.6 QBR through uh, throwing for just five yards per attempt, no touchdowns, two interceptions, and two fumbles, including one lost, while staring at Jack Cohen go off and have a really nice start to the season. We, we talk about predicted points added per play a lot for quarterback. 0.4 is above average, basically where Ian Book and Jack Cohen have trended the last couple of years. Graham Mertz was zero against Penn State. He added zero points per play in that game. And honestly, that might have been generous. Like, Penn State has a good defense, but Graham Mertz just looked mediocre. I'm not trying to knock Graham. He sounds like a great overall guy. The coaches apparently love his locker room and his leadership. He was the number 65 recruit in the country with huge expectations. But in the big game, he's really struggled to move the football. In a game where his running backs were churning out four yards per carry, they were moving the football and Penn State running the ball. Um, It's not like this offense was asking Graham Mertz to put the team on his back. He just had to not make mistakes. And he went out there and committed three turnovers and didn't really make up for it anywhere else. Um, And he just looked lost on offense. I think takeaway number one for this Penn State game, Graham Mertz, is not going to be the best quarterback on the field next Saturday against Jack Cohn. He's still green. He's second year, didn't play a ton of games last year. Maybe he will be good uh, when he gets another year under his belt, but he's not. I don't think he's that guy right now, as you said, Brett. Um, on the defense side of the ball, uh, I'm not sure how great Sean Clifford is. There's rave reviews on Noah Kane, Jahan Dotson, his playmakers at Penn State. I think the jury's still out on Clifford, but... Wisconsin fans have to be happy on the other side of the ball. 16 points allowed, really all on two plays. And that's despite the offense putting them in bad positions all day. Um, And where does that leave us in the advanced stats in 2021? FEI has this as the number 10 team in the country with Notre Dame at number 17. FEI is rating the Badgers as the number four most efficient defense in the nation and the number 35 offense. It's early, really early. And clearly the efficiency ratings are going to look at the Penn State game as a top 10 top 15 matchup i'm just not sure we saw anything from wisconsin's offense that says that they go from the number 98 offense last year to the number 35 offensive offense this year when they've struggled yeah i think those ratings really come from some success rate and bad luck Uh, wisconsin lost to penn state because they had three turnovers from mertz their post-game win expectancy in that game was 82 percent so the success rate in that game was actually 45%. Again, anything in the mid-40s is, is going to be a top 25 offense. So they were really competitive against Penn State's defense. They, they moved the ball. So as much as we harp on Mertz having a really bad game, the rest of the Wisconsin offense really centered around their running game. It's pretty solid. And, and you especially saw that in the second half. 
They missed a short field goal. They had the three turnovers. Um, and so not only did they turn it over three times, two of those turnovers were in the red zone. So they, they had scoring opportunities. Mertz made mistakes, and they just weren't able to get points on the board. But Wisconsin's offense, at least against Penn State in one data point, has shown the ability to move the ball up and down the field. And that's a really good point. So if you're the Irish, I think you're optimistic that Mertz just might not be the guy in big moments. Against ranked teams, Mertz-led offenses have failed to score more than 10 points. In those three games, he's had eight turnovers plus two other fumbles that Wisconsin managed to recover. And he's averaged only five yards per passing attempt. Not great. He's throwing the ball to Danny Davis III and Jake Ferguson. Those two guys were 77% of the Wisconsin production in the passing game against Penn State. Davis was a top 300 recruit out of Ohio. Ferguson number 354 in his class. Big physical tight end. I think Ferguson is the guy to watch here against ND, especially given our injuries at linebacker. Just a tough matchup. And then like all Wisconsin teams, a great running game. This year it's Chez Maluzzi, a transfer from Clemson, top 300 recruit, relatively limited action last year. At its face, he's off to a great start. He ran for 120 yards against Penn State, but the advanced box scores didn't show him a lot of love. His predicted points added per play was actually worse than Mertz. It was slightly negative at negative 0.04. So while he was the entire running game, the advanced metrics attributed a lot of that to Wisconsin's offensive line. On defense, they bring back eight starters from a top five defense a year ago. Jack, uh, Jack Sanborn, Leo Chanel, Nick Herbig, Noah Burks, all linebackers, all great tacklers. All can bring some pressure in the pass rush. They do lose two of their better rushers on the defensive line, but this is a deep group. Gave Penn State some issues. Generated a 14% havoc rate, which was almost entirely from this front seven bringing pressure in the backfield. And then in the secondary, this was a weak spot for Wisconsin last year. They were prone to giving up big plays with a lot of young players trying to emerge. Their top corner is now in the NFL. Top safety also graduated. But otherwise, they bring back the rest of the two deep. As as we mentioned, though, they gave up two big plays to Penn State's Jahan Dotson, and that basically decided the outcome of that game. So in a lot of ways, this Wisconsin defense has some similar issues that we're seeing with Notre Dame's defense. Really solid for big stretches of games, allowing big plays, the Achilles heel right now. And a lot of that seems to be from inexperience in Wisconsin secondary. But as you mentioned, Mike, defensive line and the linebackers, especially the linebackers, that's the heart of this Wisconsin defense and, and where they really rest uh, where they really lean heavily on, on their defensive side of the football. Last note on an overall talent level in this game, we've called out a couple of the guys here and mentioned the recruiting rankings. Wisconsin has a reputation for mediocre recruiting and finding those Wisconsin right type of guys, the Notre Dame equivalent of uh, our right kind of guys. That's not really true anymore. This squad is number 21 in 247's overall talent composite. That's actually the highest ranking Wisconsin has ever had in that metric. So certainly... They have done a good job developing players, but if you look at them right now, they've strung together some really good recruiting classes. Let's step back and talk about reasons for concerns and reasons for optimism going into this game. I'll, I'll start on offense. Look, Tommy Reese's squad has moved the ball well this year. They've given up sacks. We've talked about that. Turnovers were an issue against Toledo, but otherwise they've protected the ball. Um, the Wisconsin team is probably the best one or two defenses, along with Cincinnati, that Notre Dame will face all year frankly, a top five defense in the country. Um, I think this is going to be a really big test. We've said it a lot in the show. Offensive line, that's the matchup to watch for. It's our area of weakness right now. It's our area of need for improvement. And it's Wisconsin's area of strength and, frankly, one of the best front sevens in the country. Um, I think Notre Dame, though, you know, they've been moving the ball through the air, and that's where Wisconsin's susceptible. So, the way to counterbalance this is similar to the Purdue game. You're going to need explosive plays. That's going to be big games from Kevin Austin, big games from Braden Lindsey, and the rest of the receivers. You're going to need those plays through the air, I think, to, to offset what Wisconsin brings up front. And on defense, I think you've got to like Notre Dame's chances here. Wisconsin isn't an explosive offense. Their longest play against Penn State was 23 yards. I think they only had three plays over 15 yards. And last year, they ranked number 120 in the country in offensive explosiveness. Big plays have been the only issue, although a big issue, but the only issue, really the Achilles heel for Notre Dame's defense this year. Combine that with Mertz's poor performances in big games, and I feel really good about Marcus Freeman's ability here to shut down that Wisconsin offense. Agreed all around. I think especially after seeing the Purdue game, I feel a lot better about the direction of our defense and, and where they're going into this game. 
offense going up against a top five defensive unit for the Badgers. That's maybe the reason for concern offset by optimism in the passing game. But I'm really just concerned if the offensive line holds up. Uh, ESPN gives Wisconsin a 54% chance to win this game. Preseason, ESPN had Notre Dame with a 60% chance to win this game. So that's flipped on us. Um, SP Plus rankings through week two suggested Wisconsin would be about a touchdown favorite. Um, Early lines are about five to six points, which seems about right based on Notre Dame's struggles against lesser competition compared to Wisconsin's stagnant loss uh, against Penn State. Um, Mike, what's your prediction for the game? Look, I definitely feel much better about our defense after the Purdue game. Uh, we, I, I think it was like a game finally where it seemed like we were figuring it out. We didn't allow quite as many big plays. Still an area to watch moving forward just to make sure that this doesn't like rear its ugly head again. But as we mentioned, Wisconsin isn't a particularly uh, explosive team on offense, which plays well into our defensive strengths and weaknesses. I think the defense for this game, I think we continue to improve, and I think we show up in this game. Um, moving to the offense, we didn't exactly have our best day in the office, office this past Saturday, but we did make up for it with explosive plays. I don't like this matchup for our offense. I think we're going to struggle to put up some points. Uh, I think in particular the offensive line matchup uh, scares me a little bit here. We Eventually we're going to continue getting better on the offensive line and gelling, but I don't think we're, we're, we're there quite yet. Uh, that being said... I do think we'll be able to put up enough for us to win in a low-scoring game. I think, as you mentioned, Mertz, he's inexperienced. He hasn't shown up in bigger games when he has played them. Maybe there'll be some turnovers. I think overall I'm going to have us winning uh, this game in a tight, low-scoring game, somewhere around 21 Notre Dame, 18 Wisconsin. I'm I'm just confused by this game. Um, I'm really optimistic that Reese has enough weapons to figure it out. If Penn State scored 17 points against Wisconsin— I really think we have more talent on the offensive side of the football than Penn State does. Um, I've been pounding this team all year. The offensive line will gel. It's just a matter of when. My heart's telling me Cohn is the better quarterback in this game. He's out to prove his old team wrong. It's going to be a great storyline for Fox to cover. So I've got the Irish 24-17. Call me crazy, but this is like about as confident as I felt about a Notre Dame bet this year. Um, I just don't really see where we're a six-point underdog to Wisconsin. I, I just don't see that after having watched them play Penn State. So I've got the Irish winning by a touchdown. I think they easily cover. This is my guarantee to our listeners. It's the lock of the week. I'd even go so far as to say take Notre Dame on the money line outright. Um, I'm feeling good about this one. Call, call me crazy, confidence. but I'm going That's, there. Yeah, it's a lot of confidence, Brett. So I'll, I'll just put this out there. So for anyone who bets Notre Dame on the money line here, if you end up losing your, your mortgage, just, just DM the account, and I'll send you Brett's address, and you can, you can take it up with him personally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyways, I think that's a good segue on Jack Cohn. So let's go to our next segment and talk transfer QBs. You've been coached. You've been put in a position. We'll keep calling plays. We'll put you in a position. Now this is your choice. Go own it. The transfer quarterback has become an increasingly common headline in college football. Certainly a transfer quarterback has been a headline at Notre Dame this year. Starting quarterback Jack Cohn is a transfer from Wisconsin. Um, Cohn is probably never uh, at Notre Dame, but for another transfer quarterback, Phil Jerkovic. Jerkovic was deemed by many, myself included, as the savior of Notre Dame football, and he committed in high school. He never wins the job. He loses the starting job to Ian Book. Didn't really seem to gel with the coaches. Transfers to Boston College. Has a great year last year and was pegged to be a top player in the ACC this year. Unfortunately, went down with a season injury in week two. If Jerkovic doesn't transfer, he's 100% the starter this year with Ian Book going to the NFL, no doubt in my mind. And so because of a transfer in our quarterback room, it opens up the door for Cone to transfer in, never even looking at Notre Dame as a potential landing spot for services, but for Jerkovic no longer being here. So let's step back. We're going to cover two big topics here covering uh, regarding QB transfers, and then we're going to wrap up by weighing how Jack Cone fits into all these pieces. First, we'll look at QBs who have transferred away from Notre Dame, much, much more common than this year with Cone transferring to Notre Dame. Then we'll look at the recent surge in QB transfers across the college football landscape. Yeah, the late Lou Samoji, an incredible journalist who was senior editor at Blue and Gold, the Notre Dame arm of rivals, covered Notre Dame football for decades, and and we lost him way too soon earlier in 2021. Uh, He often covered the history of every quarterback that transferred from Notre Dame. It was a running theme he did that he'd publish every year and, and update it. There were 26 quarterbacks to transfer away from Notre Dame since 1970. 
that doesn't include grad transfers who received a degree from Notre Dame. So that excludes guys like Dane Christ, Andrew Hendricks, Everett Golson, Malik Zaire, Brandon Wimbush. 26 quarterbacks um, transferred away from Notre Dame, almost one every other year for really about 50 years now. Now, there's a recurring belief among ND fans that those QBs are never successful after transferring. And that's not quite true. Roy Henry, he was a backup to Tom Clements and Joe Montana, then transferred and threw for 4,600 years in his career at Louisiana Lafayette. Randy Wright transferred to Wisconsin in 1979, got drafted by the Packers, and even started an entire season in the NFL in 1986. Maybe my favorite story is Zach Kustak. He's our number four QB after the emergence of our Naz battle, one of Brett's all-time uh, ND players. He's not my Naz. He's not your Naz. He's our Naz. <laughs> and with that, Brett will, Brett will, uh, I'll show Brett the door. <laughs> Zach transfers <laughs> to Northwestern, throws for nearly 6,000 yards, rushes for 1,300, and wins a share of the 2000 Big Ten title for Northwestern. And it gets better. He comes back to Notre Dame to get his MBA in 2014. Awesome stuff. Last one I'd like to highlight, Gunnar Keel, five-star recruit, backup to Everett Golson, and now Coach Tom Reese in the BCS title game run. Transfers to Cincy, ironically where Brian Kelly just left, so we trade a head coach for a quarterback. And a lot of folks don't remember this, but he was good. He threw for 50 touchdowns in two seasons, really had a shot at the NFL before injuries sent him back, never got to the last level, uh, sorry, to the next level. But Gunnar Keel, big highlight, uh, Highlight recruit for Brian Kelly early in his tenure. Never really worked out at, at Notre Dame, but had a great career at Cincy. Definitely. A lot of anecdotes here, some random history. But suffice to say, NDQBs that weren't able to break through as a starter have had some very successful college careers elsewhere. And I think that's important context as we think about Jack, Jack Cohn coming to ND this year, but also Phil Jerkovich at Boston College right now. Jerkovich was a top 100 recruit in his class. Irish fans were hyping him up to be the future of the program really since his sophomore year. I know I was really high on him as a recruit. I thought he had a chance to start as a true freshman. Uh, and look, it didn't work out. Played really well last year, threw 17 touchdowns, 2,600 yards on a pretty pedestrian BC team. Had all the makings for a huge season this year. Um, and frankly, a lot of Irish fans should be wondering if we would have been better off with Jerkovich instead of Cohn. Certainly, Cohn has looked great at times. But there was another talented QB in that locker room just a couple seasons ago that was the, that was the heir apparent to uh, ND football. Switching gears to quarterback transfers and just what they now look like across college football because it's shifted a lot in recent years. Quarterback transfers used to be considered really the guys that couldn't make it as a starter at their school, and so then they would transfer to a worse school. Um, take Jerkovich. Couldn't make it at Notre Dame, so he goes to backup college, pun intended. What do the following quarterbacks have in common? Joe Burrow, Kyler Murray, Baker Mayfield. Between the three of them, all three have won the Heisman. All three were drafted number one in the NFL draft three years in a row, and they were all quarterback transfers. Burrow from Ohio State to LSU, Kyler from Texas A&M to Oklahoma, Baker from Texas Tech to Oklahoma. Just need to repeat this. Three straight number one overall draft picks in the NFL were college quarterback transfers. All a little bit different. Baker wasn't highly recruited. Burrow was a big-time recruit that was stuck behind Dwayne Haskins at Ohio State and had to go find a home elsewhere. Um, But really, we've seen a shift in college football where the quarterback transfer is oftentimes big-time college football players. Want some other names? Jalen Hurts wins SEC Offensive Player of the Year in 2016, wins a national championship that next year in 2017, but then loses his job to a generational talent in Tua. Then transfers to Oklahoma, where he's the runner-up for the Heisman. Another example, Justin Fields, number one QB recruit, was behind Jake from, Jake from State Fromm on some talented Georgia teams. Number 11 draft pick to the Bears, Jake from State Fromm also stole the job from Georgia's incumbent starter, Jacob Eason. Eason was a five-star recruit out of high school, Gatorade Football Player of the Year. He transfers to Washington, throws for 3,000 yards his senior year. He and Fromm, now both in the NFL, with solid backup roles. Also, interesting note on Eason, his father, Tony, played football for the Irish back in the 80s. Ready for another round? And now this is more recent in the college football landscape this year. Texas Tech starter Alan Bowman goes to Michigan. Michigan starter Joe Milton goes to Tennessee. Not to mention Shea Patterson a couple years ago, the five-star QB from Mississippi that goes to Michigan and becomes their starter. You've got JT Daniels, who tears his ACL at USC, loses his job to Keaton Slovis. Now he's the starter for a top five team in Athens with Georgia. 
and high on NFL draft boards. TJ Finley starting for Auburn, former LSU backup. Grant Gannell starting for Memphis. He wasn't even a backup at Arizona. He was just looking to play for a better team. And then, of course, Irish fans know all about McKenzie Milton from uh, UCF, where he was a Heisman candidate before a really bad injury a couple years ago. He loses his starting job, top talent in college football. Now he's starting for Florida State. It used to feel like successful transfer cues were a rarity. Cam Newton, Russell Wilson, once-in-a-decade stories. Now it's the most common path to win the Heisman get, and get drafted number one overall. And there's a dozen of big-time, highly productive college QBs every year that are transfers playing for a new team. So what's our take on this? What we're really trying to set up is to create a couple buckets for how you look at these QB transfers. Maybe in the first bucket, a guy that transfers from a high-power program that, for whatever reason, he doesn't win the starting job, but he's really, really good. Justin Fields, Joe Burrow, high-profile stars. The second is maybe that guy that gets hurt, loses his job, goes elsewhere uh, to look for a new team. Mackenzie Milton, JT Daniels, Jacob Eason. And these two aren't exclusive. You could be in both buckets. But I think those are kind of the two big buckets of stars looking for a place to play early in their career. And then maybe really solid starters that, for whatever reason, do well, get hurt, lose their job, and are now looking for a new home. But overall, we've talked a lot about COVID rules opening up eligibility and transfers. This is especially true for the QB position for big-time college football players. And frankly, it's become the Wild West. There seems to be as much turnover amongst starting college uh, starting college QBs as there is in the NFL. This has really become free agency, free agency for these QBs, and it's just a different era. I don't know if it's good or if it's bad for the game, if it's good or if it's bad for these kids. I really don't want to speculate on that because I don't know. There could be a lot of unintended consequences that we're just not fully aware of, but college QB transfers are very, very different than maybe the historical stereotype. So to wrap up this section, where's Jack Cohn fit in? He's clearly in that camp of a good starter, above average starter who gets hurt, loses his starting job, and then goes and looks to play elsewhere. But I also want to be clear, Jack Cohn, he's not JT Daniels. He's not Justin Fields. He's just not that level of recruiting pedigree or NFL draft grade. But he's a really good college football quarterback. And he's a starter who is a transfer. A lot of Notre Dame fans heading into the season were tweeting, shouting from the rooftops that, Starting a transfer quarterback is a sign of weakness for the program or a lack of player development or a lack of recruiting. That's just not the case in college football anymore. The transfer portal, it's a lot like free agency in the pro game. I thought that was a great comparison, Mike. It's just a part of winning formula now to get championships and and appearances in the college football playoffs. It's been the case for Ohio State, for Georgia, for Oklahoma, for LSU. But we also need to be realistic that we didn't get uh, Justin Fields or Joe Burrow. Jack Cohn is not a Heisman Trophy winner. Uh, He's not an All-American. He's not that guy that's going to elevate the team and carry them to a championship. But he is a very solid starter. This isn't the old days where a transfer QB meant you're just getting someone's leftovers. I don't think Jack Cohn is the guy that's going to take this team to the next level, but he's certainly proving he can plug in and help this team win 10-plus games. Maybe. Big maybe. Maybe even contend for a playoff spot. Although I think we all realize that this Irish squad has a long ways to go first before we start thinking seriously about that. So with that, let's turn it over to this week's Four Horsemen segment. That was fun to watch. It was fun to watch you guys play. Uh, there was an incredible energy. Uh, there was a looseness, but there was a focus on what needed to happen. It was exciting to see a group of guys that believed so much in what they were doing and how they were doing it. It's a great football team. It's fun to watch. For our next segment, we're going to go to our recurring Four Horsemen segment. In this case, it'll be the Four Horsemen of Chicago Notre Dame Bars. For all our Irish faithful who need to rise and shine, get a quick Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary or Beermosa for breakfast and still be tailgating at the crack of dawn, this weekend will be a challenge with the 11 a.m. kickoff. Thank you, thank you, Fox, and the Big Noon kickoff for that. Uh, and as our in-house resident expert in all things Chicago, Brett's got you covered on where to go. Brett, you want to kick us off? Let's do it. We're going to go through the four horsemen of Notre Dame sports bars in Chicago. I'm going to start actually with an honorable mention, the Irish Oak. This might be the number one Chicago sports bar for most Notre Dame fans. However, I watched both the 2014 Florida State game and the 2015 Clemson game at Irish Oak, both crushing losses. I proceeded to have my table removed um, for a bachelorette party that had a conflicting reservation. Not exactly a great way for a quote-unquote Notre Dame bar to treat their patrons in the fourth quarter. So they're honorable mention. They're not on the list. I didn't forget about them. 
Starting off the list, Declan's Irish Pub. Now, I need to be honest with our listeners. I lived about three blocks from Declan's, and I never actually watched a Notre Dame game there. However, I can assure you, fantastic Irish Pub. And since I've left town a few years ago, Declan's has fully leaned into being the official Notre Dame bar of Chicago. So when you combine an already great Irish Pub with Notre Dame sports, you're good to go. Nearby in the area, you're also down the street from Happy Camper Pizza and Orso's Italian in the street. Um, up the street. In fact, if our listeners show up to Orso's around 7 or 8 o'clock on Friday before the Wisconsin game, Mike and I will be there. We would love to have a drink with you and talk all things Irish, meet and greet with our listeners. Who knows? Number three on the list, Broken Barrel, formerly known as Irish Crossings. It was getting remodeled, then it closed, then it looked like it was going to open, then a few years went by. She's finally back, rebranded as Broken Barrel, solid Notre Dame football bar, My kitchen cabinet is still filled with Irish Crossing Miller Light Cups, amazing beer garden, and I can assure you that you probably won't remember the score of the game if you spend four hours on a Saturday at Broken Barrel, so especially a great game if you think Notre Dame's not going to win. Next on the list, look, I really wanted to make this number one, but it's new on the scene as ND Bar, and so I'm not even sure it's technically a Notre Dame bar, but shenanigans in the Gold Coast neighborhood of Chicago, another two-block walk from my old stomping ground. And during COVID, shenanigans actually started blocking off Division Street in Chicago on Saturday mornings after the farmer's market, and they would project Notre Dame games on a big, huge projector screen in the middle of uh, Division Street. So look, I love shenanigans, great bar, 10-foot basketball hoop for Papa Shot going on, but what's even better about shenanigans is it's an instant bar crawl opportunity. Butch McGuire's is right down the door, uh, two doors down, maybe the most famous Irish pub in Chicago. Uh, Then across the street, you've got the Lodge and Hopsmith, and then just one block away, the most incredible late night bar in all of America, the legendary, the one, the only, the hang up. 5 a.m. bar, it doesn't even get busy till 1 a.m. It's where all great nights in Chicago end. And certainly, we hope to see you there 12 hours after Notre Dame takes down Wisconsin. Last on the list, number one, drumroll please, Racine Plumbing. Frankly, this one is personal to me. I've watched more bar games at Racine Plumbing than all of the others combined. Jim, the unpaid intern of the podcast and also one of our best friends from college, lived just a couple blocks away, and this was our go-to Notre Dame bar. Uh, It's located in Lincoln Park. It's down the street from Kingston Mines if you want to double down and go to a staple in the Chicago blues scene. Also a great starter for a bar crawl. Rose's Lounge is next door, Prost, Irish Eyes, Hidden Shamrock, Burwood Tap, all the stones throw away. So many a great nights have begun with a Notre Dame victory at Racine Plumbing, followed by a night out in Lincoln Park. One of my favorite Chicago neighborhoods lands with number one on the four horsemen list of Notre Dame bars in Chicago. So I think we just did the four horsemen of Chicago Notre Dame bars by talking about two dozen Chicago bars, but not quite sure how that happened, but here we are. Um, I'm going to play bartender here, cut bread off. Uh, hope everyone finds a nice, cold, refreshing adult beverage this weekend. Or 10. Or 10. And with that, the show's a wrap. Guy Irish, beat Badgers. Guy Irish.